this, this weekend, this, this week, right? We've got so many events going on. We've got the, the Waste Management WM Open going on. For those of you that like golf, Scotty Scheffler in the lead. He won last year, which is interesting. Believer in Christ gives glory to God. Love that. Uh, there's another event. Mahomes, um, what is it? Uh, oh, yeah, Super Bowl. Mahomes hurts two believers in Christ going up against you. All eyes and attention are on Phoenix, right? And if it's not for maybe sporting events, it's for streakers. If you guys missed it, there's always something going on at the Waste Management. Some guy with an insane mullet and crazy mustache evaded security. they got to get faster security at these things. It took them forever to get this guy, right? Um, case Kevin Durant coming to this. I mean, there's just so much. Can I just tell you right now, I was thinking about this last night. They were talking about all the celebrities in town and all the big events. And I just had to stop and go, what really matters, like right now today, is not a Super Bowl. It's not a golf tournament. You know where all the eyes and the attention really is? It's right here. It's in this place called the church. You know what matters in eternity? In heaven, they're not watching the Super Bowl. The angels and the, the trinity, you know what they're most intrigued by? The gathering of the saints. Think about that. The most important event going on right now in the world is what's happening not only in this church, but any church that's gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that put it in perspective? As much as we applaud all the celebrities, oh, G DJ Khaled's in town. Who the freaking cares? Christ is on the throne. That is the name that will go down in, in history as the greatest name of all. And what matters more than anything else is this moment right now. I think we tend to lose sight of that, don't we? And I, and I wonder if that's perhaps part of our, our fickleness as human beings. We, we, we lose a little bit of excitement and luster. I took, I took three teen boys down to the NFL experience this week. And at the end of it, after all the time and money spent, you know, it's like, hey, did you guys enjoy it? Yeah, it was okay. And you know what? I felt the same way too. I think the world wants us to be enamored wants us to be so enthralled, so excited about sporting events and celebrities that we really forget about what really matters in time and eternity. And it's Christ upon the throne and the gathering of his people until we go to meet him face to face. This is the most exciting moment in all of history right now. Not what happens in a stadium in Glendale, but what happens in any institutional setting where the people of God have gathered. Some of you are like, boy, you are really bursting all of our joy right now, Pastor Scott. You really know how to, but I'm just keeping it in perspective because in the end, when you meet your father face to face, it doesn't matter who wins the Super Bowl. Half of you can't remember who won last year. Amen? <laughs> Half of you don't even know who's playing in this year's. All you're like is, I just hope they score a lot of baskets. That's what I'm hoping for, right? Like, <laughs> halftime <laughs> show. Who's even playing in that, right? It doesn't matter what, ma what should consume us, 
which should cause this incredible amount of just zeal and energy are the things that are going to last for time and eternity. And this is what Acts 17 is about. We have a guy named Paul who will tell you that nothing else matters but Christ and him crucified. There's no other message that should compel us to the ends of the earth and to, to, to risk our blood, sweat, and tears for other than to preach Christ and him crucified. If only we brought to the table the same amount of enthusiasm as we would say for our favorite quarterback or for our NFL team. There's more people excited about Mahomes than they are about Jesus. There's more people excited about who's in the White House than they are about Jesus. There's more people excited about who's going to win the, the race this week or this or that. And all I know is that, boy, no wonder we feel so passionless, so we lack this energy, we lack this enthusiasm because we've allowed the things of the world to excite us more than the Son of God. And I pray that maybe Acts 17 would just reinstill within us what really matters for time and eternity. We have a young woman in our church that is now in eternity. We're going to celebrate her life today, Michelle. She knows. She knows now more than she's ever known before. Like, church! <laughs> Let me tell you what's really exciting, what's going on right now in the heavenly places. The song that erupts for, for, for all eternity, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Rochelle's saying, church, don't get excited about the Super Bowl. Get excited about this. The greatest party, right here, right now. The church gathered to celebrate, focus on Christ Jesus. Nothing more important than that. Acts 17, turn there in your Bibles, if you will. Uh, I was thinking that we were going to go to verse 15. I just said, whoa, whoa. You know what? That might be too much. So we're going to go to verse 9 today. So we're going to do nine verses this morning. My wife goes, no, just press in. Let's do it. I go, no. We can't rush through the word of God. There's so much going on in this new town, this new city called Thessalonica. We're going to hang out in Thessalonica. We were just in Philippi. And you remember that we last week tied a lot of the, the passages from Philippians into Paul's experience in Philippi. Well, today's the same with Thessalonica. Paul writes, his earliest letters are to the church at Thessalonica. It's called Thessalonians. There's two of them in your Bible, First and Second Thessalonians. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. As we navigate this text in Acts, we're going to look at a few passages from Thessalonians. And I want you to read Thessalonians this week should be pretty easy. It's only five chapters in the first letter and three in the second. Eight chapters may take you 10, 15 minutes. But I want you to think about Thessalonians as Paul is going to bring the gospel to Thessalonica, a city of 200,000 people. It's not a small city. It's actually a very wealthy and influential city. Um, but with every city, it had its uh, host of, of sins and troubles and issues and I, lo I love the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into environments like that and, and radically disrupts those things and changes them for, for the better. And we're going to see that with Paul and Silas going to Thessalonica. They leave Philippi on their own terms, which I love it. I love this kind of the, the stubbornness of Paul. Remember, the, the leaders wanted him to leave secretly because they, they, had they had treated him poorly. 
And he said, no, we're not going to leave quite yet. We want a public apology, and then we're going to hang out at Lydia's pad for a little bit and have a little party, and then we'll leave when, when we're ready to. And then Paul and Silas, and remember, this is after being severely beaten in a night in prison that turned into a worship service. These guys travel 100 miles after that event. So they leave Philippi, and they travel 100 miles to the town of Thessalonica. Why? Because these men are consumed with passion for people to come to know Jesus. Some of you wouldn't want to walk 100 feet for someone to know the love of Christ. These guys are willing to go 100 miles with busted up bodies, bruised and bloodied backs, no sleep at all. They're going to walk 100 miles to find the next city for people to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pretty amazing, huh? Look at Acts 17, starting at verse 1. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So they passed through some other cities, and we don't know what they did or didn't do there. All I know is that they passed through one town that was about 30 miles. Then they went another 30 miles, and they ultimately went to Thessalonica, a bigger city. And maybe this is where Paul wanted to focus his energies. And they found a synagogue there, synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom... He went into the synagogue and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ or is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of prominent women. Go ladies! Woohoo! And the, but there were some Jews who weren't as persuaded. As a matter of fact, it ticked them off. They became jealous and taken along with them some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, Paul and Silas, they began dragging Jason and some of the other brethren out before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned our world upside down. Whoa. That's a cool phrase. Circle that in your Bible. We're going to spend a little bit of time on that. That's so good. These men have come and turned our world upside down. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king and his name is Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who had heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. May God write his eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. So here we go. So here are Paul and Silas in a brand new city, and they get to take the gospel of Jesus Christ there. And as, and as custom, right, we see people who respond favorably to the message, and we see people who do not respond favorably to the message. But there's three points I want us to navigate through these nine verses, and the first one is this, that there is an openness to the king. So they come into town, and their only message is Jesus. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the only message that matters. Let's just, just 
let's, let's cut to the chase, right? There's no other mass message that matters. This is why Paul would say we preach Christ and him crucified. He is our focus. He is the, 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 the main point of our message. He's the main thing we want people to know. So he's moved with love and enthusiasm to, to go into town and tell people about Jesus. Now, what is customary to Paul is that he's going to start with the synagogues. And I want you to know that when you try to find people open to the king, and there are people open to talking about spiritual things, there are things that we can learn from Paul in this passage that are going to help us take the message to those places that God takes us to. First point is this, I want you to understand, is that he starts with the spiritual. He starts with those who are already sensitive to the things of God. He finds the synagogue right? So in your first blank, what we would do well to do is pay attention to the people who have a spiritual interest. There's a spiritual appetite, you can tell, that's being formed. There's a spiritual hunger there. And so Paul goes, my ministry will be easy or easier if I find those places where people are already open to the things of God. And I'm going to tell you right now, wherever you go, Whoever you interact with, most likely people are open to spiritual things. People are open to talk about God. People are open to talk about things that matter in, in, in our lives, in our world. And so the first thing we need to understand is that Paul starts with those who are spiritual or those who are sensitive or those who are maybe seeking. Let me just tell you, it's going to be a lot easier than going to those who are totally closed off and opposed to anything spiritual. So think about the people in your life. Think about the people who are already interested in God. They may not know Jesus yet, but they're willing to talk about spiritual things. Second thing Paul does is he not only starts, and that starts, not stars, even though you're all stars, amen? It starts with the spiritual. Second is, then we go, and then he starts with the, the scriptures. So notice what Paul does next He's, he says, I'm going to the synagogue where they're already opening the Old Testament. Here are the, the Jews that have gathered. There are God-fearing Greeks that are interested in the Old Testament. So he's already going into an environment where the Bible is being opened. The Old Testament scriptures, what at this time they had available to them, 39 books of the Bible, Old Testament, prophet, laws, poetry, all that stuff. He starts with the scripture because they're already interested in the Old Testament. So he says, let's talk about the Bible. And then third, he starts then with a strategy. So he starts with the spiritual. Then once he's there, he's going to start with scripture. And then once they open the scripture, he's got a strategy. And it's a four-pronged approach. And this is where we're going to spend a little bit of time because this is going to be very helpful for all of us. The first thing he does, it says, is that he finds the synagogue. Look at verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. There's a synagogue, verse 2, and according to Paul's custom, he goes to them and for three Sabbaths. So here's the good news. You're not going to win anybody over with one conversation. Even the apostle Paul spent three Sabbaths with this group of people until there's some sort of movement, some sort of response. So everyone take a little sigh of relief and realize like, hey, sometimes it's a process with people. It was a process probably with you and the Lord. But just realize that when God works, it's according to his timetable. Just be faithful. Be patient. Be faithful. Let God orchestrate all the events. Let God work in the heart. What's the strategy? So Paul says over three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He explained the scriptures to them. He gives evidence 
that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And then he says to them, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah or is the Christ. Four things. So write these things down. Four-pronged approach in how Paul engages people to think about spiritual things, specifically points them to Christ. First is this. He engages He reasons. He doesn't give a sermon. He sits and he enters a conversation. No one wants you to sermonize to them. No one wants you to, to, for them to be your pet project and for you to deliver a sermon. They want to enter into a dialogue. There needs to be a back and forth. There need to be questions and answers. And so this is what Paul does. He he forms a spiritual exchange, and perhaps he throws out some topics. Perhaps he throws out a question. And and this is like the Socratic method of of teaching, right? It's it's a dialogue. It's question and answer. And so I want to encourage you with this. Again, people want to talk. I have yet to meet people that don't want to talk about spiritual things that are open to spiritual things. They may not agree with where you've arrived spiritually, but they're at least open to dialogue. So first and foremost, look to engage, look to have a dialogue, look to have a civil conversation, okay? Number two, then he moves into explaining. And I love this because this is what it says. He, he opens the scripture to them. So after a period of time of dialogue, back and forth, question, answer, he starts to open the word, and when God's word is open, it does a supernatural work on the heart. Think about Luke in chapter 24. Luke writes about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And you remember they're sad because they're like, this Jesus that we thought was the Messiah has been crucified. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts to walk with them, even though they don't know it's Jesus with them. And it says in that account that when he opened the Bible, their their hearts burned within them. When he started to open the scripture and, and, and explain the scripture, there was something supernatural that took place in their hearts. Ladies and gentlemen, I think sometimes we forget how powerful the word of God is. When we open the word of God, it's as if God's voice is, is literally speaking to us. His word is his voice. His voice is his heart. His heart is what he wants us to know more than anything else. And so what we get to do on Sunday mornings is exactly this point. We get to open the scriptures and I get the privilege of explaining it to us. And I don't treat this as just, hey, hey, what's that book club you go to on Sunday mornings at that, at that coffee house in Chandler? This is not a book club. This is just not some gathering of people that are like, oh, we're really interested in talking about spiritual things. This is sacred territory right now where we get to open the very voice of God and I get the opportunity to explain it to us. And what we know from Isaiah chapter 55 that when the word is shared, it never comes back empty or void. And so here we are opening the word. This is what we do on every Sunday. Every, people go, oh, Scott, what do you do? What's your job as a pastor? I get to open the word of God and explain it to people. And we try to do this, and here's two key qualifications, clarity and simplicity. I don't want to get up here and use $20 theological words. I could do that. 
But some of you would be like, what the heck is superlapsarianism? Who cares? What matters is if a child is able to understand it, then I think we're getting someplace. With clarity and simplicity, we get to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't lean too much on human reasoning, and we don't lean too much on sentimental emotionalism. I want to engage you in your mind, body, and spirit. And I want us to not necessarily put all the cookies on the bottom shelf. I want us to to raise our level of intellect because I think so many times Christianity is seen as anti-intellectual. And I want you to know that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is very important. And people want to talk, but they don't want to be talked down to. They don't want to be talked to as if they were dumb. This is what I love about C.S. Lewis. Some of you are like, why do you love C.S. Lewis so much? Because he appeals to the intellect in ways that are very clear and simple. This is why I really, really appreciate the works of C.S. Lewis. And so if I can somehow model a bit of that, if I can take some lofty theological concepts and and bring clarity and simplicity to it, then, then God's work and his word has the freedom to do what he needs to do in our hearts and our consciences. And he does what he does in our hearts and our consciences through our minds. Amen? And so we get to explain. Third thing is he gives evidence. So he gets to prove through sharing his particular experience and how that syncs up with the, with the scriptures, right? He gets, to, he gets to bring Old Testament scriptures. Some of the Old Testament scriptures that Paul probably brought to the table in these synagogues, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Psalm 118, Isaiah 52, 53. Because here's what we have to understand is that the Old Testament is such an important part of what God wants us to learn about him and ultimately what the Old Testament points to, and that's the work, personal work of Jesus Christ. So here's what I did. I did this, and I, and I, and I can email this to you, or you can go to our, um, I think you can go to our Facebook page. It's on there. Um, we, there's a very popular pastor today in our country. He's out of Georgia, pastors a church of, you know, billion, two billion people. I don't know how big his church is, but uh, he's a very influential pastor. But a few years ago, he came out and basically said, it is time for us to get, basically get rid of the Old Testament because it's blocking people from coming to know Jesus. And I sit there and go, so you're basically saying two-thirds of our Bible, which is what the Old Testament comprises, we just kind of need to get rid of it. And he wrote a book, and this has been blowing up and moving like wildfire. Like, yeah, people are like, we don't need the Old Testament. And I sit there and go, are you kidding me? This is the very material that Paul used to point people to Christ. Why is the Old Testament important? Why would I mention just, and I just rattled off some verses for you. If you didn't write them down, here they are again. Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Psalm 118, Isaiah 52, 53. Why do I talk about these passages? Because these are just a few of the passages that point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 talks about Jesus' crucifixion. The suffering servant passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 53 talks about the, 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 uh, the pain and the torture and the trauma, the crucifixion that Christ would endure for us. By his stripes we are healed. But the uh, Psalm 16 passage refers to his resurrection. He will not allow his holy one to undergo decay. The Bible 
is not just this random collection of ununderstandable material. Two-thirds of your Bible points to the personal work of, of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, Jesus is found in every chapter of the Bible. Every chapter. Every word of the scriptures inspired by God. Every word. Which means even the genealogies that most of you pass by and go, why would I need to read that? Because the gospel and what Jesus is and what he's going to do is in there. Well, what about Leviticus? It's really boring. Why should I know about, you know, so-and-so's, you know, uh, you know mixed fabrics and sexuality and all this? It's important. It all points to Jesus. I have in front of you this, this document that I've, I've put together, Messianic Prophecies Fulfilled in Jesus. What this means is that I have almost three pages of Old Testament, New, Te- New Testament connections of what Jesus came to do and how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And you've got pastors of mega churches, influential churches saying, get rid of the Old Testament because it's stopping people from coming to know Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, you have no foundation to stand on if you get rid of the Old Testament. This is why Paul, 2,000 years ago, and I'm going to say we could still do it today, gives evidence, proves that this Jesus fulfills everything that Jesus was talked about in, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, Third and Second Hesitations, all those great passages that you guys are familiar with. Jesus is found throughout the Old Testament. And if we get rid of this, we get rid of all the riches of not only what God has told us, but how he's a God who's faithful to his word and to his promises. So if you're interested in a copy of this, let me know. I can, this is amazing. And I even have it all broken out here too. Prophecies concerning his birth. Prophecies concerning his nature. Prophecies concerning his ministry. Prophecies concerning events after his burial. Prophecies fulfilled in just one day of Jesus' life. Here they are. Hundreds. And for any one person to fulfill even just eight. So choose eight would be like taking a silver dollar, putting a nice big black X on that silver dollar, throwing it in the state of Texas along with enough silver dollars to bury the state of Texas two feet deep. I drop you from 30,000 feet out of an airplane blindfolded and you have one pick and you're going to pick that one silver dollar with the X on it. That's the likelihood of any one person fulfilling any eight prophecies. Some of you are like, (laughs) I haven't had enough coffee to process this kind of mathematical equation. What I'm saying is, without the Old Testament, without the scriptures, ladies and gentlemen, we basically have nothing to point people to. And I'm going to say, once again, we need the scriptures to be able to show people, look what God does, look what God has said, look what God has fulfilled, look what God has promised. He is a God of his word. And so Paul shares the fact that this has been the plan throughout the Scripture. Don't forget that the Bible is the plan that there's a Redeemer coming who's going to die on behalf of sinners in order to reconcile them to God. That's the good news. And so here we have Paul saying, let me tell you about the hero of the Bible. Who's the hero of the Bible? Jesus. And Jesus is the hero then of every message. Oh, look at you coming up here and snagging that, so... Oh, you're awesome. Thank you. I love you. All right, so here we go. 
So he, he gives evidence, and not only evidence from Scripture, but he also, this, at this point, he probably gives evidence from his own personal journey. Did he not himself meet the resurrected Christ in Acts chapter 9? Did he not turn from the greatest persecutor of the church to the greatest promoter of the church? And so this is probably where you, he interweaves his own personal story in with these people, right? And this is a message that now he's willing to endure conflict over. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. So again, remember he's writing to the Thessalonians later. And look what he says. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how, we t- how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is what Paul celebrates. The fact that there are men and women in Thessalonica that are turning from idols to serve the living and true God. There's no more important thing than that. To help people turn from false gods to the one true God. And this is last point under this, under this section is that he encourages. Look what he does. He, in, in, in verse uh, 3, he says this, that he goes to explain that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and says, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you. So that word proclaiming is a strong encouragement to believe. So after you engage and after you explain and after you give evidence there ultimately is a call that says, what do you think about this? Do you, do you believe? I mean, ultimately, that is the question that matters. Of everything that's been shared with you, do you believe? And praise God, these men and women, many of them turn from dead gods to the one true living God. Matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says this to the church uh, at, at Thessalonica. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but even our own selves. So there's not only the sharing of the message, but there's the sharing of their lives. Because you've become very dear to us, for you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We work night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So you notice that he is in Thessalonica at least three Sabbaths. He's probably there for a couple months. And God is working. And, and the question is, what are they doing in between the Sabbaths? Right? Because the Sabbath was that one day during the week where the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks gathered. What were they doing the rest of the time? Well, look right here in this passage. For you remember, others, our labor and toil, we work day and night. Paul and Silas worked in between the Sabbaths. What did they do for a living? Any, anyone know? They were tent makers, which means they had non-ministry jobs, meaning they were involved in the workforce, and they did it because they wanted to not be a burden financially, so they became handymen in a certain craft of making tents. Now, here's what I love about this, and this is something that we try to live out as as a community, and this is what I want to encourage you all to live out too, is that God wants normal people like us doing normal jobs like we do, but with gospel intentionality. Write that phrase down. Gospel intentionality, meaning this. Your work, Monday through Saturday, is as important, perhaps even more important than my job even explaining the scriptures on Sunday. Because everyone knows pastor only works on Sunday. Amen, right? Like that's a... You guys are like, what do you guys do? What do you do during the rest of the week? Like, I don't do anything. I go play golf. I watch sports, right? And then I come and I give a message and I'm done. 
No, I don't. I, my life is full of, of, of ministry. Type. But I, here's what I'm here to tell you is that your job, though you may see yourself as a normal person and you may see your employment as perhaps normal employment. Some of you have uh, your own businesses, your entrepreneurs. Some of you work in, in construction. Some of you work in real estate. Some of you work in the medical field. But here's the beauty of wherever God has you, However normal you may feel and normal you feel your job is, the gospel intentionality piece is what makes who you are and what you do eternally significant. Because you are the hands and feet of Christ no matter where you go and no matter who you interact with. I think this is a piece that is largely missing in our culture when we fail to realize you're not just a follower of Jesus on Sunday mornings. Amen? You can live with gospel intentionality, which I believe is, is, speaks, uh, is spoken of repeatedly throughout Scripture, that wherever you go, whoever you meet, whatever you put your hands to do, you can do it all for the glory of God and with a gospel edge to it. Do I get an amen from somebody? Why is this hard sometimes to embrace? Why is this hard to sometimes accept? Why is this hard to, I think, I think so many times we, we institutionalize the church. We, we make it all about Sunday and we make it all about Bible studies and we make it all about small groups. And, and yet most of our lives are lived outside of those contexts. And I really want to be a pastor in a church that really takes Ephesians chapter four, write it down, look at it later that says, how are we equipping and mobilizing the saints for the work of ministry? Because here's the call of God upon us all. We're all ministers in the house of God. We're all pastors in the house of God. We are all ambassadors and agents on mission for God wherever he takes us. So when people go, Pastor Scott, where's your church? I go, wherever the people of God are at. And they go, what does that mean? Because I like to speak in riddles and mysteries. What it means is this, the church is not a building. The church is the people of God, organically connected, spiritually connected by the Spirit, and wherever God may take you, that's where the church is. And all God's people said, come on, you guys. Normal people doing normal jobs with gospel intentionality. This is our prayer for you. I pray that you pray this for us as well, that we would learn really what it means to be missional people, because that's what this idea means, missional, because Paul will continue in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Look what he says later on. He says these words, uh, verses 9 through 12. Do we have those? Uh, there we go. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work day and night, right? Not being a burden on any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct before you, toward you believers, for you know how like a father with his children we exhorted you, how like a mother, right, we, we ministered to you, that's what he would say later, and we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul says in First Thessalonians 2, you know, we were like a father and we were like a mother to you. Fathers sometimes can be a little bit tough and a mother can be a little bit tenderhearted. Both are important. But notice what he does. He says, we're, we're going to live among you. You're going to observe our lives. You're going to watch our lives. You're going to see our integrity. And we're going to encourage you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling in Christ Jesus. The reason I mention this is it's going to come up here in a moment. 
It's going to come up here in a moment, and this is so important because as you live with gospel intentionality, people need to see how you sanctify Christ as Lord in your lives and in your hearts. How does the world know you love Jesus? How is that conveyed in your lives as you're living, working with gospel intentionality? We're going to talk about that. Great question. But look at verse 4. Here's the response. Jews believe. Some of the Greek-fearing Jews, uh, Greeks believe. Number of leading women believe. Why? Because the, the gods that their cultures promised them left them empty. The philosophies, the, the ideologies were vain and just lifeless. So you bring Jesus into the equation, who is life, who is truth, who is the way. He brings people that, that satisfaction that every heart is hungry for. But not everyone responds favorably. Look at verse 5. <laughs> so all of a sudden now there's opposition to the king. So you have this openness to the king and, and people are open all over the world. This is what's amazing about the gospel and ministry. People are open to, 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 to talk about Jesus and even accept Jesus. But then there's opposition. Look at verse 5. And so some of the Jews becoming jealous, taking along some wicked men. Basically, they hired some thugs. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is probably Occupy Thessalonica. This is the first Occupy movement that took place in the world. You guys remember all the Occupy stuff that took place? It's like, we don't know what we're mad about, but we want change. And it's just futile and empty or whatever, right? Um, and it's interesting how people are opposed to the king. Can I just say, I just read this week two articles, one about Portland and one about Amsterdam. And here's what's really, really sadly funny about these things is that, so Portland, which would be probably considered one of the most liberal places in our country, um, the city's falling apart. And there's a report this week to say, yeah, maybe some of our policies weren't the best policies. And we're all sitting back going, duh, like it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure this stuff out, right? But they're really regretting some of the laws they passed and some of the, the uh, uh, actions they allowed people to, 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 be a, to be a part of and to decide upon. All because, right, people want to do their own thing. And sometimes God goes, I'll let you do your own thing, but you're going to feel the pain of it. Amsterdam this week that is known for, you know, just liberalism off the charts, right? They're basically redefining some of their marijuana laws because the neighbors get upset that people are getting a little too rowdy in the middle of the night because they're smoking pot and going down to the red light district. And so now Amsterdam's dealing with a problem of people living life opposed to the things of God. Let's just go ahead and get intoxicated. Let's just get drugged up. Let's just go out and have just, you know, casual sex with anyone and and the world, you know, you let people do what they want to do, they're going to discover that it's empty. They're going to discover that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dead end journey. You can do whatever you want to do. My, 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 my thought to you is good luck with that. Let me know how it works out for you. Because here's what's going to happen time and time again. You give people what they want and they're going to realize that that God does not satisfy them. Whether it's the God of drugs, God of alcohol, God of sex, God of ambition, God of career, God of whatever, there's only one God that satisfies. So while I may sit there and kind of snicker at Portland and I may snicker at Amsterdam, I sit there and I grieve because these people are hungry for God. They're opposed to the king and they're opposed to those ethics of that kingdom. But what, what are you left with? Do we really want a country that basically gives us everything we want? And to what end? It only will leave us 
desiring something more and something deeper. And so while we experience opposition to the king, here's what I'm going to tell you right now is, is don't take it personally. People that are opposed to the king from the very beginning, as much as we try to bring the good news to the equation, people are resistant to that. And notice what Paul and, and the others do. They just continue to, to pray and they continue to minister even though people are opposed. And, and when they can't argue with you, they'll resort to violence. And that's what happens here. And so may we be a people that even though we realize that our message may be resisted, there may be opposition, we're still called to be patient with people. We're still called to love people. We're still called to be kind to them. Don't fight fire with fire. Amen? Don't retaliate when you're being retaliated too, right? Like this is, this is a, take a play from the book of Jesus, right? When he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was being harshly treated, he didn't encounter that. But with gentleness and respect, be ready to give an account of the hope that's in you. Which leads to point number three. And this is where I'm going to call, I'm basically going to call us to, to something better. Um, while we've seen openness to the king, we've seen op opposition to the king, the last thing is this, is the overturning of the king. And whether we realize it or not, God is overturning our lives every single day. He's bringing people into the kingdom. And once you're even in the kingdom, that doesn't mean he stops overturning your lives. How many of you have felt like God has been overturning your life for the past week or two? Maybe the past six months. Maybe the past few years. I don't know. But here's what God does. And this is what is so interesting about verse 6. So look at verse 6. And when they did not find Paul and Silas at Jason's house. Now, God bless Jason, right? For those of you that have thought, is Jason a biblical name? It is, because it's right there. So good, Jason, you're in good company. So Jason became an early convert. And he had a house big enough where he could show hospitality to, to Paul and Silas. Some people say Jason owned a hotel. Like this was like something that he rented out rooms. And this is why Paul and Silas were tent makers. They could stay at the Thessalonica Motel 6 that Jason was the operator of. And that's where they hung out. But for some reason they weren't there the night that the thugs arrived and wanted to arrest them. So they take Jason and other believers. And here is the accusation. See, if they were truthful, it would have been, hey, you know, they're preaching a message that we don't like. But instead, they throw another phrase into the mix. These guys are turning our world upside down. Think about this phrase, because this is really the truth. <laughs> the fall, Genesis chapter 3, you go back to the very beginning with Adam and Eve. The world right now is not right side up. The world we live in is not the way it ought to be, and we all feel that. What the gospel does, it turns us back right side up. And essentially, all the movies that come out, The Matrix, what Neo's looking, that's the gospel. Now, I'm not saying they set out to show us the gospel in The Matrix, but I'm going to tell you right now, what a cool concept, and this is probably why The Matrix has such appeal, is that we all know that there's something that once you're plugged into The Matrix, you start to see things as they really are. How about Stranger Things, the upside down? Is that not, once again, a play upon this idea that there's some other realm in operation that we need to find out about? Well, this is the gospel. The gospel comes and says... There's a spiritual kingdom, there's spiritual realities that unless you have Jesus, you'll never understand even though you know they're there. These people have come to turn our world upside down. Let's talk about that. So the first uh, point in your, in your notes is this. 
Jesus comes and he brings an upside-down kingdom. Have you ever looked at the, the conundrums that Jesus teaches, right? The, the things that Jesus teaches. He says what? If you want to be first, you've got to be? You want to be rich, you've got to become? I mean, these are not things that our world teaches us. <laughs> Jesus comes and just counters everything, right? And these are elements of the upside-down kingdom. This is why probably the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the greatest sermon ever spoken, because it's by Jesus himself, is a message about how to live counterculturally. Write down that phrase, counterculture. Even though we are a part of culture, we're called to be distinct from culture. We're to be different from culture. This is part of what the word holiness means. If you've been saved in Christ, you have been set apart as holy. And what does holiness mean? It means you look different than your non-believing neighbor. This means you think different than your non-believing co-worker. This means there's something about you that sets you apart from someone who doesn't have Christ. Now here's my concern. Is that there's probably not a lot of people in our culture pointing at you or me and saying, you're turning my world upside down. Why? Because we look like everybody else. There's not this holy distinctiveness that's part of our lives. We blend in just like the rest of the crowd. And I've got to say to you guys, that is problematic. That is problematic. There ought to be the testimony of people saying, that guy is, is a spiritual revolutionary. <laughs> that doesn't mean you're just militant and combatant and you're, you're just looking for arguments and fights. What it means is that there is something distinctive about our lives that is making the culture different. Ladies and gentlemen, are we really turning the world upside down? Could the statement be told uh, of us? I mean, think about it. Christianity, if we truly believe what we say we believe, uh, there, there, there ought to be something powerful, powerful about our testimony. And it's not necessarily the things we say, it's the things we, we live out. That I'm going to treat my marriage differently than the way my neighbor treats their marriage. And my kids are going to look different than the way my, my, my neighbor's kids look. And the way I honor God with my mind and my, my wallet and, and my time, like those are going to be different. But if they're not, what good are we? The problem, I think, is that while we may talk about an upside-down kingdom, let's talk about the reality of it, and that's the second point, and it's this. We probably don't understand the inside-out king. Before the upside-down kingdom can be established, the king has to do an inside-out work on our hearts. Meaning this. We're not here to teach ethics. We're not here to teach morality. We're not here to say, hey, you want to uh, embrace some great Christian behavior? Let me give you 10 steps to changing your attitude. Because let me just tell you right now, until your heart is changed by the king of kings, your life will not change at all. Because God did not come to bring a kingdom without first changing the hearts to adore the king of that kingdom.
Don't say you belong when he doesn't have you. Don't say you have a citizenship in heaven when you don't know the king of heaven. Now I'm preaching. Now this is where, ladies and gentlemen, you ought to be different in how you conduct your lives. This is why Paul says in Thessalonians, walk in a manner worthy of your calling in Christ Jesus. How is your walk on a Monday through Saturday look distinctively different than your non-believing coworker, neighbor, family member, friend, whoever it may be, you ought to look different. And there ought to be something in that person that says, your life is changing things and it's making them upside down. To be honest with you, I think what our cultures embrace is a very toothless, passionless, zealless faith. And we deny the power thereof. There's zeal, but there's no knowledge. There's an understanding, but there's no heart change. And I think there's more people damned than saved. And I can't preach to the world, but I can preach to you guys and say, I want you to be a part of the upside down kingdom. (laughs) But you can't have the kingdom until you treasure and love the king. Does he have your heart? Has Has he transformed your, is he transforming your life? What is there about your speech, your conduct, your spending habits, your time spent on TV, your time spent? What is there that looks different? Because if you don't look different, that ought to cause concern. And you need to ask yourself, is is my king Christ? Look what it says in verse, verse 7. These guys are saying Caesar's not king and that there's this other king named Jesus. And I'm here to say, that's true. The world presents us kings all the time. Kings, queens, authorities, powers, governors, presidents, you name it. But there's only one king that will reign forever and one kingdom that will last forever. And that's who our ultimate allegiance is to. Did not Christ himself say, I did not come to bring a political kingdom, but I came to bring a spiritual kingdom. So here we are today. Some of you are going to go to a Super Bowl party today where you're going to watch people score a lot of baskets. Here's my question to you. What's going to make you stand out at that party? What's going to make you look different? Are you just going to blend in and be like everybody else? Or is there going to be this desire for gospel intentionality that's going to somehow make me stand out and not laugh at the jokes or whatever? We're called to be different. And this is how the world, even though this may be... (laughs) Uh, uh, they're in their eyes a negative. They're turning the world upside down. I sit there and go, this is the greatest compliment you can give the church. You know what I'm praying for us to do is turn this world upside down for people to taste and see that the Lord is good. For them to understand that in our hearts there's a king that will reign forever. The fact that he reigns on our hearts is as reign enough 
that there's a calmness and there's a coolness about our lives because we know the King of kings and Lord of lords. And though the world may be shaking all around us, our hearts are not shaking because we're secure in him. Do you know this king? Are you a part of this kingdom? Because I don't want to be a part of toothless, passionless Christianity. I want us to be a people who are turning the world upside down. How about you? And all God's people said, we're called to be different. So, do you know this king? Because he's unlike any other ruler of the world. He's come to give life and give it abundantly. He's come to give joy and give it without end. He's come to give hope, reminding us that while the doomsday clock, did you guys hear a couple weeks ago? The doomsday clock, if you don't know about the doomsday clock, every year these atomic scientists come together and go, how close are we on the, uh, to global collapse? So this is totally something you guys all want to tune into, right? Break away from Downton Abbey and watch the doomsday clock video. They've moved the clock 90 seconds before midnight, the closest it's ever been. Because they're looking at the world and they're looking at Russia and Ukraine and all these mysterious flying blimps over Alaska and the United States and who knows what's going on there. And they're going, we are basically 90 seconds from global collapse. Which makes me super excited and super jazzed. But you know what those guys say that? And you know, it doesn't breed fear or terror in me. You know what it breeds in me? Excitement. Because it means Jesus is even more closer than ever. It means his kingdom that will last forever is even closer than ever. What are you fearing, O little flock? Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, don't you know that it is your father's desire to give you the kingdom? There's nothing to fear. There's nothing to be terrified of. The world would want you to live in debilitation and paralyzed. But these are some of the most exciting days to be alive. To live with gospel intentionality and to share the good news of Christ with everyone we come in contact with. That's what I'm praying for. Let's continue to turn the world upside down. And as God continues to turn our lives upside down, let us go out and tell others about this God who turns our lives inside out and upside down. Let's stand, let's pray. Father, you're uh, truly good to us. Thank you for the time that we've been able to be together. The time that we've been able to sing and see one another, to hug one another, to, to just warmly, warmly welcome one another, to, to pray for one another, Lord, to, to dive into your word together. Lord, I, I'm thankful that you're a God who has not left us without understanding. You're not a God who's not left us without direction for our lives. You've given us everything pertaining to life and godliness that we need. And so help us to, to live in that with a, a sense of contentment. Help us to continue to treasure Christ like we've never treasured anything else in our lives, Lord, because in Christ is satisfaction. In, in Christ is the fulfillment of all our hopes and dreams. Lord, forgive us for the ways we've tried to feast on and, and feed off other things and, and nothing else matters than the king and his kingdom. So Lord, help us to, to live out Matthew chapter 6 in our lives. Help us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness 
And knowing that as we pursue those things, all other things will be given to us. Lord, thank you for your, your tenderness. Thank you for your, your ever-loving compassion and mercy you extend to us. Thank you that you're a true Heavenly Father who will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you for all that we have in Christ Jesus. Help us to share the good news with everybody we come in contact with. And I know we're going to be able to do that today. With Rochelle's memorial, Lord, there'll, there'll be people who don't have Jesus. May we be a people who point others to Christ because only in him is life and life eternal. So thank you again for this morning. Be glorified in our lives. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face toward you and give you his grace and peace forever and ever. Amen. We'll see you guys. See you soon.